You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. You may be seated, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles. Daniel 4. No, actually, Daniel 12. Sorry. That scared you, didn't it? (laughs) We're going to do this again? You know what? We're actually going to come to the end of Daniel today, the end of Daniel 12. And then next week, we're going to finish up the series which actually is entitled She Who Is in Babylon. And if you want to know why the series is called such a crazy name, you'll have to come back next week. So for the sake of time, because we're going to uh, finish today and we've got a lot to cover, I I just want to read the first four verses to kind of jumpstart us into this passage. It, um, It begins with at that time, and this time is talking about the end times. And an angel or some type of supernatural being is sharing this with Daniel. So he says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, the Jewish people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. That's the tribulation. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who would lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Now, the the 12th chapter as a whole is a general summary of God's plan for the future. We learned last week that God's plan for the future, first of all, is sealed and secure. Uh, We said it like this, God's plan for the future is sealed in concrete. God will fulfill His plan for the human race, and therefore we don't have to worry about the future, no matter how chaotic it may get. The Lord is our shepherd right now, and one day we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in between that, He will take care of us. We don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about all the chaotic things. These things are all part of the last days. But God will take care of His children. Second of all, God's plan for the, for the last days has an end and a new beginning. Everything as we know it, we learn, will pass away. The old order of things will pass away. Revelation 21 tells us all things will be made new by God. And this, of course, is our great hope. Thirdly, God's... Uh, plan for the future involves a great tribulation. And we saw the seven-year period will involve great suffering, but also great repentance. Daniel was told by the angel that many will be purified, but he was also told that the wicked will remain wicked. And this is one of the reasons, or a part of one of the reasons, for the fourth part of God's plan for the future And that is bodily resurrection. God's plan for the future involves bodily resurrection. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, There are two resurrections that are mentioned here, one to everlasting life and the other one to everlasting shame and contempt. 
Daniel does not tell us when these will take place, but we know from the New Testament that these two resurrections take place at two different times in God's end-time program. Now, rather than explaining all of the details about the timing, what we chose to do last week and will finish to do this week is focus on the nature of those two resurrections. First, let's take up the believer's resurrection. And again, we started this last week, so a little bit of this will be some review. The believer's resurrection is actually a part of God's comprehensive plan of salvation. And that plan includes saving your spirit, saving your soul, and saving your body. And not only your body, but everything in creation. All of creation will be renewed. This is a part of God's plan of salvation. The moment you believe the gospel, that very moment your spirit is saved. You become a child of God. And as you progressively through life believe the gospel more deeply and more deeply, your soul is being saved or experiencing sanctification or becoming more like Jesus. And then one day when the Lord returns, your body, the third part of you, will be saved, instantly transformed at a moment of bodily resurrection. It will be a new body, but it will be your body still, the one given to you at the moment of conception. It may have been in the grave for thousands of years and turned into dust or cremated and scattered over the ocean. Nonetheless, those molecules will all be supernaturally reconstituted by God, resurrected by God for you to live forever in a flesh and bone body. Until that time of bodily resurrection, though, when a believer dies, the Bible tells us their spirit and their soul go immediately to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But as we saw last week, to be present with the Lord implies something. To be present, you have to have some kind of form or substance that makes you present. You have to have some kind of body. You are not without form. You're not like a ghost that you can kind of see through. No, you have substance, you have form, you have a body, just not a flesh and bone body. I don't know what kind of body that will be. For the sake of our teaching, we're calling that our spiritual body versus our flesh and bone body. But this spiritual body that you have after you die is not your final status. God's plan of salvation includes your physical body, so you will once again have a flesh and bone physical body just like Jesus did after His resurrection. In fact, His resurrection actually guarantees ours. His bodily resurrection guarantees that we too will experience bodily resurrection. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 22 tells us. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep is a euphemism for death in the Bible. So Christ is the first fruits of everyone who has died. His resurrection from dead is the first fruits. Now what is the first fruits? It's, the fir it's an agricultural term. It refers to the first part of the harvest that anticipates the rest of the harvest coming in. So Christ's resurrection is the first fruit in anticipation of a much greater resurrection of all believers in Jesus Christ. 
It goes on to say, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead will also come through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, second coming, those who belong to him. And so this transformation will happen to those who belong to him when he comes. Now a bit later in 1 Corinthians 15, we discover how this will happen. How is this going to happen? It says in verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, euphemism for death, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, we who? We who are alive will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So one day, you will have a flesh and bone body free from the effects of sin and decay and disease and other limitations. It will not only be an imperishable body, it will never decay. It will not only be an immortal body, it will live forever. But it will also be a glorious body like the body of Jesus when he returns again. That's what Philippians 3 says, that he will transform our lowly bodies so that, look at this, they will be like his glorious body. So what was that glorious body of Jesus like after his resurrection? Well, first of all, Jesus' body was recognizable. His disciples recognized him unless he supernaturally hid his identity from them like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But remember John chapter, tw John chapter 21, Peter sees the Lord on the, on the seashore and says, it's the Lord, and he jumps off the boat. He recognized him. Why? He looked the same. We're going to look the same too. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. And since, our, and since not only our body, but our brain, which is a part of our body, will experience resurrection, guess what? We'll know everybody and we won't forget one name. Every person you'd have ever known, that name will be there with total clarity. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? In, in, in heaven, nobody calls anybody brother or sister. They call them by name. <laughs> Just kidding. Je Jesus' resurrection body, second of all, was immortal and imperishable, and therefore not subject to decay. And like him, you will not age, because aging is actually cellular decay. There will be no decay in heaven. Jesus will be 33 forever. I don't know if you're going to be 33 forever. I can't find that in the Bible, but you're not going to grow old. For sure, because why? That is decay, and there'll be no decay. Why? Because your body is what? Imperishable, incapable of decay, immortal. It will live forever. Thirdly, Jesus' resurrection body was able to eat and drink, but not to fuel his body. Not to fuel his body. The resurrection body, again, is not subject to decay and therefore doesn't need to be replenished with caloric energy. So eating will take on a much higher purpose, a more spiritual purpose, which is revealed uh, in probably the greatest uh, dinner of all time in the human race, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. You will eat. It's not a metaphor. You will 
eat. And you can eat, but you, in this body, don't have to because you don't need the fuel. Now, wouldn't that be cool? Fourthly, Jesus' resurrection body was without defect. All of the crucifixion scars, except the ones that serve as a sign of our salvation, vanished from Jesus' body in the resurrection. I'm not sure there was somebody who was more bloodied and beaten and scarred and torn and cut and lacerated than the body of Jesus. And yet, when He rose, none of that was there. The only thing that was left was the scars that are symbols of our redemption, the two in His wrists and one in His side. Nothing is said about the feet. Everything else healed. Healed. To me, this is one of the most amazing things. He'll be the only one with scars in heaven. Everyone else, everyone else, their body will be raised without disease, without disability, without defect, without limitation. All will be perfect in body, perfect in mind. Just think about what that's going to be like. Think about the people in your life who suffer under something in that category, whether in body or mind, one day. One day. That's you. Jesus' resurrection body was fifthly not limited to the, the laws of the natural world. He could appear and disappear. He could pass right through walls. John 20 tells the story of Jesus. The disciples gather together with a locked door for fear of being persecuted by the Jewish leaders, and all of a sudden, Jesus appeared among them. There was no opened and closed door. It was locked. Jesus just passed through. That's a very cool thing that I'm looking forward to. I don't know if it'll be cool, though, if everybody can do it. (laughs) It's only cool if you're the only one, right? Well, there'll be lots of limitations that that we have in and we experience in our natural body that, won't, that our resurrection body won't be subject to. The next thing is Jesus' resurrection body had capacity for glory or to shine like the sun. Revelation 1.16 says that about Him. And our bodies, as we read earlier in Philippians 2, will have that same capacity that will allow us to experience the unmitigated presence of God just like the angels. Right now, if your body, if you were to be bodily before the Lord, it would be curtains, an early death for you, because no sinful flesh can stand in the presence of God's holiness. So God gives us a body that can. The Revelation says there will become a day where I will be their God and I will dwell among them, literally present with them. We'll be able to withstand that with these new bodies that we have, just like the angels of, of heaven. The Bible says in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That's what the angel said to Daniel. He said, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, that is the believer's resurrection. But the message to Daniel also includes a resurrection for the bodies of unbelievers. And this one is not widely known. Or understood. He said, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, the believer's resurrection, others to shame 
and everlasting contempt. The unbeliever's resurrection. Jesus said the same thing. Matthew chapter 5, he said, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Paul says the same thing in Acts 24. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And as we have previously learned, that term righteous does not refer to those who are morally stellar. But those who have placed their faith in the morally perfect righteous one, Jesus Christ. The word righteous doesn't refer to moralism. It refers to position in Christ. Likewise, wicked does not necessarily refer to someone who's overtly humanly evil, but rather someone who may be humanly good, but who rejects God's truth, rejects God's Son, rejects God's gospel of grace, and rejects God's forgiveness. That is the ultimate in wickedness. And that's what the Bible means oftentimes when it uses those two terms, the righteous and the wicked. And Paul says here there'll be a resurrection for, for both. And as with the bodily resurrection of the believer, a little context is required to understand the bodily resurrection of the unbeliever. When an unbeliever dies, just like a believer, their body dies, but their spirit and soul continue to exist in some kind of spiritual body. This is revealed in the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, where a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus both die. The time came Verse 22, when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. This is before the cross. Abraham's side or bosom was a holding place for believers in the Old Testament until Jesus died and rose again, after which it was moved to heaven. These are the believers. Here's where the Old Testament believers. And so here's this beggar in that place. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades... Not in Abraham's bosom, in Hades or hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus, the beggar, by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So here you have the rich man in hell with the ability to see to recognize, to speak, to feel temperature? That's not a ghost. Bring some water to cool the tip of my tongue? Whatever the spiritual body is for unbelievers, it feels torment. It feels agony in hell, but it is not consumed. Why? It's an imperishable body. It will never perish. It can never burn up. And what is true of unbelievers' spiritual body in hell is also true of their resurrected physical body in the ultimate place of judgment, the lake of fire. So you see, one of the main purposes of physical resurrection is to enable a person to either receive rewards in heaven or judgment in the lake of fire. And that's the fifth part of God's plan for the future. 
It involves and includes a final reward for the righteous and a final judgment for the wicked. There is in the plan of God a final, perfect, eternal justice. God's justice will see to it that every believer who overcame the world will be rewarded and every unbeliever who embraced the world by rejecting Christ will be judged. And that judgment of the unbeliever is revealed many places throughout the Bible, but none like Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from His presence and there was no place for Him. There was no escape. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books, plural, were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this, this judgment is for unbelievers. It's called the great white throne of judgment. All unbelievers in hell are bodily resurrected. They receive back their body to stand physically to face this judgment at the great white throne. John says, I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne. Even after their bodies are resurrected from the dead, they are still called the dead because they are still dead in their trespasses and sins, alienated and cut off forever from the life of God. Present to be judged were both the great and small. Whatever they were in the eyes of man now offered them no advantage in this courtroom. This was not the court of man's justice where bribes are given and received. This is a courtroom, as the book of Hebrews says, where everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom all will give an account. The basis for the judgment we read was taken from two books. Actually, a set of books and a singular book. The books of works and the book of life. The book of works contains everything every unbeliever has ever done in their life. The book of life contains the name of every person who ever believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. Not being found in that book of life, they were consigned to stand before God on the basis of what they had done in their lives, meticulously recorded in the books of works. But all of their works, no matter how great, will fall miserably short of what only Christ's work on the cross could attain. Instead of justifying them, their works will actually condemn them to the lake of fire. That is God's justice. It is a perfect justice. It is like the rest of God's attributes, perfect. It is never too lax. It is never too excessive. It is perfect like all of the other attributes of God. His righteousness is perfect. His faithfulness is perfect. 
His mercy is perfect. And His justice is perfect. You say, I don't care very much for the justice of God. I think I'll just focus on His love. Ah, but you do care for His justice. For without it, you would not be sitting here this morning saved in Jesus Christ. Because it turns out the same justice that condemns the sinner also makes righteous the believer. The same justice that condemns the sinner is the same justice that saves the sinner. Here's how. God is so holy that sin is a capital crime. Now, we can't understand that because of sin in us. It blinds us to seeing just how holy God is. And that's why we have the Scripture to inform us what God is like. To inform us, Romans 6.23, the wages or the penalty of sin is death. And that's not just talking about physical death. That's talking about the second death. That's talking about the lake of fire. And since God is perfectly just, He must execute the penalty that sin deserves. It's impossible for Him not to be just. It's impossible for Him not to exercise justice. But if it was, and it isn't, but if it was, if He allowed one sin to go unjudged, His integrity would implode and the universe would collapse. Because the universe is upheld by the word of His power, by His, by his internal integrity. And for one part of that integrity to have a glitch would cause all of it to collapse and the universe would fold. God is just. But God is also love. He has a perfect love. God so loved us that at an infinite cost to Himself, the cost of His Son, He provided for us a substitute to bear what His eternal justice demanded. His eternal justice said, there's got to be a penalty to that. That's a capital crime. But instead of judging us, He sends Christ to take that judgment for us in our place. Christ became a man through the incarnation for the express purpose of being able to physically, as a man, hang on that cross to bear the wrath of God for our sin, to take our sin sentence. Jesus took the judgment that our sin deserved and thus perfectly satisfied the justice of God. In the Bible, this is called propitiation. Jesus has become our propitiation. He is our satisfaction. He has perfect, perfectly satisfied God's justice. And He said so on the cross when He said, It is is finished. Price paid. Now, now, instead of God's justice being the source of condemnation, it actually becomes the source of blessing for the believer. Because instead of condemning you now, it protects you. It ensures that you will never ever be condemned. For it would be unjust to judge the same sin twice. If Christ bore it, you cannot bear it. Amen. 
God's justice ensures that you will never, ever, ever be condemned for your sin. If Christ was condemned for it, you cannot or ever be condemned for it. Do you feel the security in that? Romans 8.1, now we get it. Now, there is what? No condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. God's justice has been perfectly and eternally satisfied through Christ. And now God's justice is no longer the source of your condemnation, but source of your blessing. Let me give you one example. 1 John 1.9. 1, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and... Now, what does that mean? To forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, faithful means what? He'll do the same thing every time without exception. Every time. Every time. No matter what. Every time. No matter how many times. Every time. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful. But He's not only faithful, He is what? Just. Just what, what does that mean? He'll never punish that sin twice. It's already been punished once in Christ. And therefore, you are forgiven. Because why? Christ paid for it. If you could kind of just make believe for a second. I'm not saying this is Bible. But it's almost as if you come before God. You have the sin of pride. You realized it. I come before you, Lord, and I confess my pride before you. And the Father looks over at the Son, and the Son goes, I bore that one. Father looks back at you, you're forgiven. It'll never be judged twice. God's justice is your friend, not your enemy. The grace of God. See, sometimes people say, well, it was through the grace of God that I'm forgiven. Yes, yes it was, yes. But what's behind the grace of God? See, what's behind the grace? The grace of God is not God being nice or looking the other way or giving you a pass. It's God demonstrating His love for you by satisfying the penalty of your sin, by satisfying His own justice, what His own justice calls for, through the death of His Son. An immeasurable price. An infinite cost. Nothing higher that He could give in all of heaven, in all of the universe, in all of creation. Infinitely more valuable than anything else is the Son. And yet, at that cost, He said, I love you and sent Him to die. How? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And whoever believes in Him, believes in what He did for them on the cross, shall not perish under God's judgment, but shall have everlasting life. That's the Gospel. And this act, this act of God's love, taken for granted sadly by so many, this act of God's love, this price paid by Christ, is so great that rejecting it will become a source of utter shame and contempt on unbelievers, in unbelievers, for all eternity. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to Shame and everlasting contempt. This shame, what is this? This deep sense. Think about a moment in your life. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Don't go back to shame, please. 
But we've all experienced that in our life where we have done something that, that by our standard is so horrible we can hardly live with ourselves. We're just so deeply grieved we, could, we couldn't even walk it off. Now multiply that by infinity for the unbeliever in hell. This deep sense of being disappointed with yourself, of having contempt for yourself to the point of abhorring yourself because you rejected Christ is one of the punishments that will be endured forever and ever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. And so it's, it's sobering. It's almost, when you think about this, when you touch on these things, they're almost unbearable. You want to go switch the subject. But the radio station cannot change right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> and here's why. Because when you consider it, why should you consider that? Well, it becomes a very powerful motive to get over your shyness. And tell other people about the great things that the Lord has done for you. Now, in contrast to everlasting shame and contempt, those who believe will be resurrected to everlasting life, and part of that everlasting or eternal life is eternal rewards, which are alluded to in the last verse of Daniel. The the, uh, angel says, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. This is an eternal reward. The New Testament explains this allotted inheritance or the believer's reward in much greater detail. Just like every single unbeliever will give an account to God and be condemned at the great white throne of judgment, every single believer will also give an account to God, and potentially be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne. It's a different place in a different time. Only believers will be here. Romans 14, for we, believers, will all stand before God's judgment seat. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves, of our life on earth, our life as a believer, to God. We're going to give an accounting. For, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is done for us, or do us, excuse me, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Each one must appear. Each one must receive what is due for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the phrase here, judgment seat, is the Greek word bema. And bema is a word that comes from the ancient Greek Olympic Games. It referred to the stand on which the master of ceremony stood when he was handing out the winner's award to whoever won that particular event. The athlete, after winning, would approach the bema and the master of ceremonies or the master of games and be rewarded. And one of the rewards that would be received among many was a a, a wreath, a crown made of laurel leaves to be worn by this person in, in honor of what they had done. Now, in a similar way, 1 Corinthians 9 says, we'll be rewarded for the way that we run and finish our race. I just got a cramp, sorry. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That was a cramp. Not enough potassium this morning. 
Whew, hope I don't get another one of those. I digress, sorry. So we're going to get a, a wreath, a reward, a crown. But not a wreath, 1 Corinthians tells us, that fades away like those laurel leaves, but a wreath or a crown that will last forever. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that we should run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That means each of us has a race. We're not all running against one another. This is a solo marathon. It's about finishing. The race marked out for us means that each one of us has our own race to run, as did the Apostle Paul. And just before he died, he spoke of this. To his young protege, Timothy, he said, I have, 2 Corinthians, uh, Timothy 4, I fought the good fight. Notice this, I have. Okay, now a lot of people don't finish their race. This is not the race of my physical life. He's not saying I'm about to die and my life has been like a race. That's not what he's saying. The race is the race to finish what God has preordained that you do in your life for His glory. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have finished what God in eternity past willed for me to do with my life. I have kept the faith. And now, there is in store for me the crown, the wreath at the Bema. I'm going to the Bema and there's a crown awaiting me at the Bema. And the Lord Jesus Himself will be the master of ceremonies and He will award this crown to me on that day. This is not just Paul. This is, as we'll see, for every believer who longs for His coming. He says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all. Say all. All. All, all who? All who longed for His appearing. Because here's what it is. Believers who long for Christ's appearing do so in a way that causes them to live for Him in this life. Nobody longs for Him if they're just caught up in this world. This is a person who's not satisfied with anything created and is longing for the ultimate day of redemption for them. For that person who has their heart set on things above, has their life centered around Christ, there is a crown of righteousness waiting. So the future judgment of believers has nothing to do with the believer's eternal destiny, for that's already been settled through faith in Jesus Christ. All sins have been forgiven. Instead, this judgment is about reward. Reward for how you lived your one and only life as a believer. This is about crowns. This is about reward. Jesus will evaluate all of our works or deeds, 2 Corinthians says, so that each one of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now good here doesn't mean any good thing we've ever done. It doesn't mean anything altruistic or humanitarian. It means good done for the glory of God. And that's what all of our goods should be for. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whether you do anything, do it all for the glory of God. Everything. What does that mean? Everything in life should be pointed towards Christ. 
for His glory, not for our own or for anyone else's. Well, there's a lot of good done that's not done for the glory of Christ. That's, that won't be rewarded. Only the good done with the motive of, of worshiping God, of, of for God, of centered on Christ. Likewise, the bad here is, is not sin. Sin's already been dealt with. There's no condemnation. That sentence has been borne by Christ. You're in heaven, man. There's no bad left. What's the bad here? The bad refers to worthless deeds or deeds done with some other motive other than pleasing God or for the glory of God. So motive, it turns out, is very, very important in what you do. For you, Lord, that should always be on the end of our lips. At work, at home, at play. All of your work, all of your life, all of your relationships, everything you do, all of your vacations, all of your leisure, all of your struggling, anything in your life should have at the end. For you, Lord. Unto you, Lord. Unto you, my life. That's what Romans tells us to do. It says that's the most logical thing for someone to do when they look at what Christ has freed them from. In view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer yourselves a living sacrifice to Him. This is your reasonable, rational act of worship. So motive says it this way in Ephesians 6, serve wholeheartedly. See, from the heart. As if you were serving the Lord Himself, not people. Oh, that's so important. Oh man, that's so important. If you're out in the pantry, you're handing out food, feels good. Help people. But who is it ultimately for? Yeah, you got to have that. So we want to help people. We love helping people. But it doesn't end with the people. It's for the glory of God. The glory of Jesus Christ. Motive so important. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. What good they do? The wholehearted good done for the Lord. But what about the good done that was not for the glory of God? Well, something happens to that. It hits the fire. 1 Corinthians 3 kind of lays the whole thing out for us. In a building analogy for you builders, those in construction, 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay any foundation other than that one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, that day at the judgment seat of Christ. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a crown. If, what is, if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So everyone builds on the same foundation. We all have the same foundation here. Every believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you believe your foundation became Jesus, he is the chief cornerstone. We are the stones in the wall, First Peter tells us. If anyone builds on this, so here we are building on that foundation. And everyone is kind of like a builder. We're all on our personal building project, which lasts our whole life. And the building materials are two. There is uh, those that last and those that don't last. There's gold, silver, precious stone, and there's wood, hay, and stubble. And on the day of the Lord, the building, which represents all of the deeds we have done in life, will be tested with fire. The fire will come. 
If what we did was gold, silver, and precious stones, it remains and will be rewarded. If what we did is wood, hay, and stubble, it will be burned up and not rewarded. There has been a lot done in the name of the Lord that will fry, that will be burned up, can I say, graciously by the Lord. There's a lot that's done in the name of Jesus that is really done ultimately for the person who did it in the name of Jesus. See, someone can say all day long, glory be to God, but still be doing what they do to elevate themselves. I did such and such for the Lord. Why? I want you to think and approve of me that I am actually a decent Christian. I did this and I did that. To God be the glory. Burned. Or a guy standing on a stage talking about how great his ministry is. Let's give God praise. Don't do that. That's all burned. Anything done for ourselves, anything done for the recognition of man or out of fear of man or for any other motive other than to you, Lord, will be graciously burned up. So do you see again how important motive is? Do you see how important it is to keep your heart right in all of life, all the time? Oh, guard your heart, the book of Proverbs says, for out of it flow the issues of life. Everything comes out of your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Keep your heart soft to the things of God. Keep your heart soft to the Spirit. So important. So there's a lot that's been done that will be burned. But you know what? On the other hand, there's a lot. There's a lot that has been done for the Lord that no one sees, no one even knows about, or that seems to be minimal, that is going to be immensely rewarded. I mean dump trucks of reward. Because the reward is proportional to the calling. In Ephesians 2, where it says you're saved by grace, it says at the end of that, you are God's workmanship. Then it says this, created in Christ Jesus, here's your calling, to do good works. Which ones? That God has prepared beforehand. What's beforehand? Eternity past. You know what that means for your life? God has X amount of good deeds, works for you to accomplish in your life. The reward is not on how much you do, it's how much you finish of what you've been allotted. Do you see that? So you look at somebody that, you know, Billy Graham, he's going to be rewarded great. Well, that's what God called him to do. And he finished it. All right? You say, well, his reward is going to be far greater than mine. God may call you to X, Y, Z, and if you get X, Y, Z and a half, man, you're going to get blessed. Because why? That's what you were called to do, and the reward is on the basis of what God has allotted to you. Just like it said to Daniel, the inheritance will be what is allotted to you. God has something that he's called each one of us to do. Things, works, efforts in the gospel to accomplish it in our life. And they've been preordained from eternity past. And we were created in Christ to fulfill those things. And if we do, if we live our life to do that, it says here there's going to be a tremendous reward. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So here, we all have the same gift of salvation. 
We all have the same eternal inheritance in Christ, but we do not and will not have the same reward. Some will have more, others will have less. So the takeaway from that is it really matters how you live now. It matters how you live now in this life because it really has some impact on the next. Heaven is by grace. Say it with me. Heaven is by grace. I don't want you to misunderstand that. But rewards in heaven are by effort in response to that grace. Whatever we do in response to God's enabling grace on the earth, we will be rewarded in heaven. You know what that means? If you live your life as kind of like a casual Christian, kind of whatever, man, I'm saved. Yeah, I think I'll go to church today. Weather's bad. Can't do anything else. Or if you're worse, a carnal Christian. Takes you 15 minutes in worship to get over Friday night in your soul. Or something else, right? There's going to be very little reward. You need to know that. If in response to God's grace, you just spend your life, not perfectly, but fighting the good fight of faith, your heart set on things above, trying to do what you feel God's called you to do, not selfishly living your life, but dying daily and picking up your cross and following Him. Nobody does that perfect. We all stumble in that in many ways. But I'm saying that is your, that, 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 that's your motto. That's the way you live. You fail at it all the time, but you go right back to it. You keep fighting the good fight of faith. You keep seeking first the kingdom. You repent. You repel. Oh, you repent. You're a repenter. You're going to have great reward. Earlier, we read in Paul's farewell words to Timothy, in which he said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And he said it's actually laid up for all those who long for Christ's appearing. Because a person who longs for Christ's appearing enjoys, enjoys their earthly life. Nobody said don't enjoy it. But their heart's not set on it. See, that's the problem. God's good gifts. We make them into idols all the time. And they... Lure our heart away from wholehearted devotion. It's a real thing in life, a real maturity in the Christian's life when they learn to appreciate the good gifts of God without letting those good gifts become idols in their heart. He says, for all those who long for the coming. And again, that's not a person who doesn't enjoy life. They enjoy life, but they have their, have their sight set on something higher, something higher than earthly things. Earthly things don't have their heart at all. They're all about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that there's an imperishable crown reserved for those who through the Holy Spirit learn to discipline their bodies so as not to waste their life on meaningless pursuits. Paul said, so they won't be like a boxer just punching the air. Like, what good is that? James says there'll be a crown of life reserved for all those whose love for God enables them to endure trial. They're in the middle of the trial, but God, I love you. I love you, Lord, no matter what. 
I trust you in this. I don't know what you're doing, but Lord, I love you with all my heart, soul, my reward, reward, reward. To the Thessalonians, I, there's, uh, Paul says, there's a crown of rejoicing for those people who, who use their life to, to, to bring and to influence other people to Jesus. There's a reward for that. You will be rewarded. It's not in this life. You've got to understand that. There's a previous theology that was taught very widely in the body of Christ that said all the reward is in this life. No very little of it is to be, fact, to be factual. Most of the reward, and here's the other thing, it's way more than you think. It's way more. It's incredible, the amount of reward. We need to, to live for that day. So the question, though, is that if I'm already in heaven, right, I'm there, what's the big deal about rewards, right? I mean, I'm in heaven. I have this inheritance given to me. It's like, wow, isn't, isn't, isn't heaven enough? It, what, why should I be concerned about rewards in heaven? There are two parables that inform us on this matter. There's the parable of the talents and the parable of the ten gold coins. And at the end of both of those, the servants who were faithful with what the master entrusted them, with what was preordained for them to do in their life, Ephesians 2.10, the ones that were faithful with what the Master gave to them. There was a greater level of responsibility given to them. Presumably, in the new heaven and new earth. It's a greater level of responsibility. I'll make you ruler over ten cities. Whatever that's going to be like, it's going to be wild. We don't even have any idea what it's going to be like. But you know the other thing that's granted? is a greater participation in the master's joy. What does he say to those who get the well done? Enter into what? The joy of your master, right? There's a greater participation in the joy of God. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's Happiness. Everybody, everybody will enjoy heaven by grace. Some will have a greater ability to enjoy it. Everybody, everybody will see Jesus face to face, but some will have the capacity to see his face clearer. Everyone will receive the same inheritance given to us in Christ. Some will have the capacity to enjoy it more. But listen, listen, no one will have shame over what could have been. No one. There's no shame in heaven. There's no regret in heaven. There will be a moment of realization at the judgment seat, but no shame, no regret. Because in heaven, it's perfect. There is no shame. There is no regret. There is no sin. There is only joy. In heaven, it's like this. There's going to be this symphony. And let's say we all were audiophiles and we loved symphonies. And we had listened to it. You know, some of us just started listening to it and others kind of listen to it more, and others were real experts in it. So we're in heaven, we're all listening to the symphony. Now, we're all here in the same symphony, and it's incredibly beautiful for all of us, but some people will have the ability to appreciate it a bit more. They won't know it, nobody else will know it, because in heaven there's no regret, there's no sorrow over what could have been, but there will be reward, and it does matter how you live this life. So, heaven's by grace, rewards are by effort and response to grace. What is your response to God's grace? Well, I'll tell you one way you can't respond. You cannot look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to live for myself. I look at that and I go, that inspires me to live for myself. 
No. What does it do? It inspires you to live for Him. If we think any other way, we're under spiritual delusion. And that's what the world and the flesh and the devil and everything coming at you all the time is trying to get you to do, to get you into that place of delusion where you don't see these things, you don't feel these things. In unison, the world, the flesh, the devil are doing what? Trying to steal your crown. Jesus said to the best church of the churches of Revelation, the one that there was no complaints against, the one that was faithful, the church of Philadelphia, he, he said this to them. He said, he said, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, Revelation 3.11, so that no one will take your crown. That means it could be taken away by who? By Satan. Satan's first strategy, of course, is to keep you from getting saved. Is saved, the second strategy is for you to stand before the Bema with nothing but hay, nothing but stubble. That's his goal for you right now. For you are saved, he can't, he can't undo that thing, right? You're secure. You've been forgiven. You've been justified. But what can he do? He can make God look bad on that day because the gospel wasn't enough to propel you to live for him. That's heavy. Live for him as your pastor. I'm saying just live for him. It's never too late. It's never too late. It's never too late to make a course correction in your life. It's never too late. God's grace is always abundant for everything. You can make a difference with your life. You can serve God. You can live that way with your heart set on things above and not on things of the earth. You can enjoy this life, but nothing take control of your heart. All of us, all of us can live that way in the grace of God. God doesn't want us to waste our lives. Satan does. And don't say to yourself right now, oh, I'm such a wretched person. I should be doing more. No, you should do what's allotted for you. You're not responsible for anything beyond that. But you need to find out what that is. And I guarantee you, that includes serving the body of Christ. I guarantee you 100%. That includes using your gifts, times, talent, ability to serve the people of God. And I also guarantee you that means influencing others towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that's a fact. I don't know anything else about it, but I know that. Because I know that's true for all of us, yours included, me included. To the church of Philadelphia and to us, Jesus says, don't let anyone take your crown. Live for God now. Seek first the kingdom. Set your hearts on things above. Lay aside, Hebrews says, every sin and the weights that aren't sin, but they weigh us down. They keep us from running. And then he says, and run the race with perseverance marked out for you. Hallelujah. Galatians, Paul says, don't let anyone cut in on you in your race and cause you to stumble. Don't let anybody keep you. From finishing your race. Don't let anyone steal your crown. Holy Spirit, take your word and minister it in a way where it lifts people to a greater vision of what you have for them in this life. The greater joy, the greater peace, the greater purpose, the greater sense of living. Many of us have been running that race All of us have fallen off the track 
but you tell us to get back up again and again and again. A righteous man falls down seven times, but gets up again. Why? Because your grace, your grace is enough. We sang about it this morning. You always come to us with open arms. The key is not trying to be perfect, not even trying harder, but believing deeper your gospel. And living with repentance and faith in what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be. Oh, Lord. think we need to have a moment. You need to have a moment with God. Help me live for that day, Lord. Help me, Jeff. Help me, pastor, toward that day. Help me be a husband toward that day, a father toward that day, a friend toward that day. this morning we offer ourselves to you again a fresh, fresh a living sacrifice use our lives the way you choose to heal us and free us so we can serve more freely meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory so we're not we're not distracted by other things Help us live lives where we we leverage what you've given us. For your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Our prayer team's coming forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here.